Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Africa Business of Sport podcast. On this episode, we will be continuing with our five-part series looking at the business of the FIFA World Cup. Jabu, what do we have for the audience today? Today is chapter five of the business of the FIFA World Cup and it is titled Diplomacy, International Relations, Soft Power and the FIFA World Cup by J. Simon Roof. This episode might be a bit more political, I suppose, because that's just its nature and it's the nature of sport, really, as we've as become to know it, especially from an African context. We know that sports and politics in this very continent is intertwined to a toxic level at times because you see how oppressive regimes, you see how um, authoritarian leaders acknowledge the power of sports, but to use it in negative ways and to grow their power base or their legitimacy, which is what we are seeing being alleged in Qatar, which is where the World Cup is taking place. So we will be reviewing extensively the hosting of the World Cup, the bidding processes before the World Cup and how politicized those processes are, and just how diplomacy has become such a huge component to the global sports business in that you get entities like political leaders who come into sports of football. So it's going to be interesting to speak about this in the context of the World Cup, Edom. And in your very brief um, recollection, how connected have sports and politics been in your impression and in your experience from watching the FIFA World Cup? And in, in episode eight of the Africa Business of Sport podcast, we reviewed the history of the FIFA World Cup. And one of the key points we discussed was the fact that FIFA has always aligned itself with particular governmental ruling structures, be it either fascism or be it author, authoritarian rule. So for me, I'm really not surprised that the World Cup, FIFA as a governing body and sports in general is used to show Form, different forms of soft power is used to show the different kinds of international relations that are developed within different continents and different stakeholders. And it also shows really and truly the prominence of diplomacy across board. One very interesting point I read or listened to about FIFA from another podcast was that a time came where when Havelange was the head of FIFA, anytime he traveled to countries, he would go with a very top level of hospitality. So a very big plane, he comes out, the president of the nation, the president of the federation of that nation comes out to see him. They give him the very best of services. And all of those things truly make FIFA more or less a god when it comes to diplomacy and international relations across the world. So I'm very excited reviewing this chapter and I cannot wait to get my point of view across to the audience and engage them later after the recording. Maybe it would be a, a good start to just take a step back and not only see diplomacy, international relations and soft power as components in football or the political side of football, but take a step back and acknowledge really the power that sports and politics have come to have in the world of live as human beings. In the 1936 Nazi German, you had Adolf Hitler leading havoc across Europe at the time during the Great Depression. And the power that holding an Olympic Games can have in that situation 
is really dangerous, first of all. But what it does, it is increases the nation standing of that particular host country. In 1934, Mussolini, who was the fascist leader of Italy, held the Second World Cup, as we spoke about on the first episode of the series, Eden. 1978, you had Argentina hosting the World Cup within a country that was being controlled by a military dictatorship that dissolved the Congress, that censored the media, that had a ruthless response to dissent and the treatment of its people in 2018 in Russia. And that is something that is spoken about really acutely in this section of the business of the FIFA World Cup book as Putin and how he came across during the lead up to that World Cup and what it served as a platform to increase his geopolitical power. And at the time, you might not have realized the power of that World Cup when you think that four years later, Ukraine becomes invaded or becomes subject to Russian oppression. So it is interesting when you look back and in that way or in a more holistic manner that the power of sport and politics and not the World Cup only or not football in particular has really been something that is growing over the decades, Edom. Jabu, when you even decide to look outside the lens of sports and, in, and, and inside the lens of diplomacy and soft power international relations in society in general, some of the very biggest organizations in the world have given the country within which they find themselves in prominence and power. You take the IOC, take FIFA, which are based in Switzerland. You take the UN, which is based in the which is based in the in the US. You take CAF, which is based in Egypt. A lot of these organizations tend to give prominence to the countries they are based in because it shows that they are very fit to host these organizations. These organizations are constantly being interacted with with ad, ad hoc or lesser organizations which are um, a part of their, their umbrella. And it really just gives you a firm understanding and an appreciation that, listen, this country is a top dog. That is why this organization is based there. So I'm not surprised that it eats directly into sports. And it's one that we will see the more we review this book. Now, it would be good to have a look at the hosting, bidding processes to host the World Cup because this can be the most politicized or has become the most politicized activity in the FIFA World Cup's history because what you have here is countries all over the world. And in the very early years of the World Cup, you had countries like Uruguay, you had countries like Italy. By the time you get to the 90s, you have the USA, which at that time is a global power, acknowledging the power that the World Cup can have, um, gains that they will get, but also politically, the political power of the World Cup, Edom, as you have seen, and as we now see with the Qatar World Cup and the amount of attention that the country is getting and how, for example, Many of people listening to this podcast might not have known where Qatar was on the map before we, know, we knew that they're going to be hosting a World Cup. So this is the sort of power and attraction and prestige that countries are chasing when they're going through the World Cup bidding processes. And these can be, again, highly politicized activities in football. I mean, there's an interesting anecdote that I... Uh, I, I listened to a podcast about where you had Matt Miller, who is who was rather the U.S. Justice Department official, was part of the bidding process. And he was explaining how in the U.S. bidding process for the 2022 FIFA World Cup, 
the U.S. bid included people like Morgan Freeman, um, London Donovan, and Bill Clinton. So you can see the sorts of lengths that bidding committees will go to in terms of bringing people from arts, people from culture, from politics, and probably football icons in their countries to come into the bidding process to increase the power and prestige that that committee of people have in order to be able to convince them to bring the World Cup. And I mean, how poetical might it have been seeing Morgan Freeman coming to a, a FIFA chamber and trying to sell the idea of World Cup happening in the US? How can you imagine the power of Bill Clinton in how he spoke and how he spoke about America and probably the power of sports and in its history? So the politics that is involved when it comes to this process can be extremely, extremely, extremely unsettling because we might think of sports as a pure entity and it's not uh, meddled from all these things in society that we try to run away from when we go to sport. But actually the interconnection with sports and politics are deep rooted. And that is an example from the World Cup bidding in particular. I mean, when you've been reading this particular section, Adam, what is something that's fascinated you or possibly didn't know or emphasized in your mind even more when you thought about and reviewed the World Cup bidding process? In reading, in reading this chapter, I spent a good amount of hours reading a book on the 2010 FIFA World Cup, which happened in South Africa. And when you bring it home to our continent in 2000, in, in the early years, South Africa wanted to host a 2006 World Cup, but lost out on having the opportunity to host. And in the subsequent years leading up to 2004, where it was announced that South Africa will get to host the 2010 World Cup, the great Mandela took time going around Africa using his prominence, using his point of view on sports and using the Ubuntu approach saying that, listen, there's an opportunity here for not just South Africa, but for Africa to be a part of a groundbreaking experience, which we've never seen before. So give us your vote, be a part of that journey. And the day that Seblata announced that South Africa will be hosting the World Cup prior to giving the highly coveted trophy to Mandela, he did agree and he did affirm that Mandela is the reason why the World Cup is coming to Africa, which shows you the power of, 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 of politics in a world where for a very long time, we didn't have our politics game together. You look at, you, you go back some years, when Mandela became president, a year into his presidency, he decided that he would use sports as a building block to bring both the whites and the black of South Africa together and move away from the apartheid era. You know, we watch the movie Invicticus. We see how successful he, he was with rugby. And he believed that he could go a step further with the World Cup. So, yes, it's very easy to say that politics and sports are deeply rooted together and more often than not, it tends to have a negative connotation. But when you have leaders like Mandela who believe in the genuine impact that sports can create, you can see that there are good seeds which are sown and which germinate from this. If Africa didn't host the World Cup in 2010, I personally do not believe that we would have experienced the kind of prominence and growth we've experienced on the continent, albeit the fact that it's still very 
lacking as compared to other continents. But that was that was a particular era where politics played its card well. And we, I mean, we are very, you and I talk about this every time. We are very grateful for the efforts that Mandela put through for the continent. So it's, it's really shown me that it's up to the host nation that is bidding for the World Cup to choose the point of view that they're going to use politics for. You know, we listened to a podcast where he spoke about how during the bidding process for the 2022 World Cup, a lot of the officials from one particular country were going around and just distributing bags of money to the executive committee um, leaders who are supposed to give the decision on the World Cup. And that really shows you from the get-go, that country was just based on using corrupt means to get to there. So you wouldn't be surprised if their political outlay with sports has been that for a very long time, as compared to a country that would go rather with the clean ethical route and saying that, yes, we believe that we have the political argument to be on the negative side, but we want to do things and do things the right way. So that was that was what came to mind anytime I read this chapter. With FIFA's particular position on political interference in football, it's quite uncertain. And that is something that Roof goes through. That is an issue that Roof goes through on page 65, where, and I quote, FIFA statutes state for member associations and confederations that they need to be independent and avoid any form of political interference. Yet simultaneously, FIFA require bidding associations to have the support of their government. And I quote, as a condition for the appointment to host and stage the competition, FIFA bid guides states that FIFA member associations are required to secure the full support of the governmental authorities at federal, state, and municipal level in their respective countries. So there is a tension here, Edom, that Roof is discussing, which kind of connects to what we're speaking about today, in that FIFA might want to have this approach where football is completely apolitical. But at the same time, in their statutes, there is some uncertainty around what they want in terms of their member associations to give or assurances to have in support of their governments or without their government support. So it's unhelpful when FIFA themselves don't have a clear position on the governmental interference or governmental support when it comes to the World Cup and football because it's, it's, it's pretty impossible yet to have all these mm. systems and structures working together in terms of the municipal level, the state level, the federal level, because you need all mm. those different polities to work well in order to deliver a fantastic, successful World Cup, don't you? Do you know what I think? I personally think that that statute was put in there not to pertain to the European or the Asian um, confederations, but primarily for the African con confederations, because the truth of the matter is all nations here have politics and their governments deeply rooted within their football administration. I mean, here, the appointment of coaches and even heads of the federation are sometimes done by the government in Ghana, right? The, the, the football federation here gets funding coming through from the government. As compared to other um, federations on other continents where they have found ways to run as a business similar to FIFA where they can generate revenue on their own, they can make decisions on their own, and they can then bring in their government to come and be a part of their decision-making system. So this is how I see it. On the side of 
the world that has developed their football to a very high degree, the federations make their decisions and the governments latch onto it because the government needs those federations to bring out the activations and the initiatives in order for money to come through. So if you think about it, the government is very dependent on the business acumen of those federations. We saw this in 2020 when um, after a long period of lockdown, the Premier League was actually able to complete regardless of the fact that fans were not at the stadium because you and I can assume that the government needed that money that would come through from broadcasting to continue in order to find a way to um, mitigate the problem of COVID. Whereas in Africa here, the federations do not generate revenue on their own. They are not businesses where they're able to find innovative ways to bring in partnerships, find innovative ways to look for money. However, they are getting money and they are getting arms from both their government and from the federations, which is CAF and from FIFA as well. So I personally believe that that was put in there to cater for the African side until we get to a point where our FAs on this continent are generating their own revenue, coming up with activations, partnerships, will continue to have government being deeply rooted in it, and that will fit in for FIFA. So one may think that FIFA is shooting itself in the foot by saying this, but if you think about deeply, it needs to able to cater for one side of the coin and another side of the coin, because whether they like it or not, with the development of sports, especially with football, Africa is still lagging. I couldn't agree more, either, man. That just paints a picture of the governance of some African football associations on the continent. What you're speaking about is encapsulating a point that Roof makes here just on point one, where he says the relationship between national FAs and their nations is intertwined in many regards. Perhaps most notably, FAs are often in receipt of taxpayers' money. Though mechanisms will vary from nation to nation in the majority of nations, and particularly those who are candidates to bid for the World Cup, FAs receive public money to fund their activities. For example, in England, a potential host for the 2030 Men's World Cup, the FA receives money from Sport England, a body that exists as to support sports and physical activity, which in turn derives money from a national lottery and the national exchequer. What this means is that the taxpaying public are stakeholders in the process. So that just encapsulates perfectly what you're saying there, Adam. And I think on the continent in particular, it's even a grimmer picture when you look at the governments and the states of disorganization and disintegration when it comes to the management of our football associations, which is it's, it's a topic that has become a buzzword really across Africa when you speak about governance, 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 football governance. Most football business summits that I see or football summits across the continent, one of the biggest, most pressing issues that are spoken about in panels or that are spoken about during summits is the governance. So it's clear what the problem is here, Edith, and that just goes to show that it's not only on the football associations to fix the problem, but it's actually the governments as well because they're so now deeply rooted in the football associations themselves. And that's why you have countries like Zimbabwe and Kenya being expelled really by FIFA just due to the level of government penetration in those organizations. So that's definitely something we should look at fixing in Africa. Jabu, I asked myself, are FIFA really surprised? And are they, are they really actually saying that, you know, 
the governments of African countries shouldn't get involved with sports because if they go back and this and for our fans, this is in episode eight of the podcast, they would realize that Havelange went in there and he met the heads of states and the heads of the federations that were being formed to come and join Africa. So from the very get-go, you've had governments deeply rooted in it, right? So is it now you're coming to change this? It then shows that you're probably not, you know, on the right border when it comes to decision-making. And having seen the trend where African nations just either vote for an acceptance of whatever FIFA wants to bring through in exchange from the arms that they'll get, you and I don't see any time soon government not trying to get its hand into the monies that these organizations, these federations get because really and truly in Africa here, we want to exploit anything and everything that comes to in the form of aid. The diplomacy of World Cup hosting, that's a section in the chapter which is gripping for many reasons, but also due to its relatability to Qatar in particular, because there are so many reasons and so many new reasons now that academics have been coming up with or been researching about Qatar's motives in particular in hosting this World Cup. If we were to just get a brief picture of the political situation in Qatar, have a look at Freedom in the World 2022. This is a report essentially, Adam, that goes around to different countries all around the world. And it rates political rights in the countries and it rates civil liberties out of 60 and 40 in particular to make a total sum of 100. And whatever you get is your freedom score. Now, Qatar got seven out of 40 for political rights, which is clearly very bad. And at civil wow. liberties, it is ranked 18 out of 60, which gives them a total of 25 out of 100. And it's categorized as not free as a country. So this is a sort of hosting uh, site that we're going to have for a FIFA World Cup, which is unprecedented. It's totally unprecedented because we have had you know, made much experience, and we spoke about this in the first episode of the series where we spoke about the hosting of the World Cup by more poorer countries, um, authoritarian countries. We just alluded to Argentina in 1978 and then being under a military dictatorship. But it's been such a long time between a country that is now this controversial hosts the World Cup. And that's why you have all the ethical and moral issues and that also speaks to the, the, the obligation that we have thought that we don't just dismiss issues and the migrant labor practices that have affected hundreds and hundreds of Africans, Edom, because some of those, those migrant workers who have died, according to The Guardian, 6,500 migrant workers have died in building stadiums. And that is something the Supreme Committee um, doesn't agree with in terms of the numbers, but Many of those migrant workers, Edom, come from this continent. So there's an obligation, I feel, um, not only for, for, for media, not only for FIFA to stand up to this, but also as fans. Unfortunately, now we're in this, in this dilemma where we are battling politics and sport, but there is no way that we can't truly enjoy this World Cup with a, a pure conscience without realizing and acknowledging the huge issues that have happened in Qatar, especially to Africans in terms of migrant labor practices that have been under par for years and years. So this is the sort of 
scene that you want to have or the, the narrative that is pushed in major news and media agencies that are put in Qatar and showing how sports washing or the use of the World Cup is being used to deflect all the attention away from, you know, the really horrific stats that come out of the country over the past few years in the lead-up. Jabu, the very sad thing about all the um, activations and all the activism and all the concerns that have been raised and all the complaints on social media and on analog media as well is that the World Cup is only for a month, right? So if for a month I'm going to be on my best behavior so that it, it looks to the world that I'm actually listening to what people are saying, I will then do it. I will then have to pretend if it should work for me. And that is what we see with most of the countries that host events. We take a look at the, the Winter Olympics, which was just hosted by China. Prior to that, I know the Americans were complaining about a lot of these situations that were happening there, especially with accepting people of different, of, 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 of different walks of life in China. But we saw that with the Olympics, with the Winter Olympics, they did prove to the world that, oh, you know, we're actually listening to what you're saying. But you and I do not know the state of affairs in society in China right now. So for an event where it's going to be short-paced, people would have to pretend if it has to be the only option to look good, right? However, imagine if the World Cup was a one-year event or put so, 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 so much pressure on Qatar to actually prove that, listen, we are listening to what you're saying and we are actually going to try and fix the situation. So sometimes people also have to consider the longevity of the event and the kind of impact that can come through. What I'll suggest is that fans, supporters and activists online should put in their energy into trying to get the collective talking about it so after the world cup we need to continue having conversations we need to continue having conferences we need to target the right stakeholders rather than just complaining about it because complaining would only have the host nation pretending quote-unquote to fix the problem when it really isn't it qatar is going to be a moral dilemma for many fans who are going to be engaging with this World Cup who have an understanding of the issues that are going on. But the sad thing, and this is the power of football, and in this case, it can be a negative force in that as soon as the first goal is scored, as soon as the first tackle goes in, as soon as the first big drama point happens, as soon as the first red card, as soon as the first huge favorite goes out of the World Cup, we forget about these issues. We completely forget and football takes over. And I'm a victim of that. Myself, I have to say, because we are swayed by the power of football. And they understand that. And that's why hosting nations understand that. Hosting nations with the reputation of Qatar. Qatar understood the power that football could have in changing the world's perception of its country and of its situation and in deflecting the attention away from their issues. He knew that. And so we ourselves as fans, Edom, we are victims of what is now becoming an, an abdication of responsibility in terms of the football authorities around the globe, in terms of individual leaders that are in football 
in not dealing with these issues in a way where fans don't feel they are now uh, a, a product of what is happening at the moment because fans are now having some sort of moral dilemma when you're thinking about if they're going to watch the World Cup in the next 20 days now because it's starting. No, 19. That is actually even more closer. So there's a... As a fan myself, Edom, as a fan myself and us doing this podcast, we're going to be speaking about the World Cup and we've been speaking about the business of the World Cup throughout the series and we'll continue to do that um, across the World Cup. The problem is how far or how, how much do we separate the human rights violations and the oppression that some groups are facing in Qatar from the commercialization and how great this World Cup is on the surface? You know, how far do we separate that and how much ourselves do we need to go back to the moral human rights issues without also making ourselves feel like we're the only ones that are most responsible for this because we have a platform or because we're speaking about the business of sports and it seems like we don't shed light on the business of sport issues. These are some moral dilemmas that I feel are being put on fans that are going to be watching the FIFA World Cup in the next few weeks in Qatar. You know, Jabu, that is the power of sports washing, right? We see that sports washing is very successful because the truth of the matter is if you take the demographic for the kind of fans that are going to watch the World Cup, majority are going to be of the older generation, the generation before us, because they are going to have their money to be able to afford to take their families to watch these competitions. And those are fans who do not really care too much of all the other things that sports are surrounded with, right? Because think about it. When... Uruguay was hosting the World Cup in 1930, when Argentina was hosting the World Cup during their military rule, when fascist Italy was hosting the World Cup. The people within those communities knew the kind of governmental rule that was used, used for them. But when the World Cup started, they probably forgot that, oh, I live in fascist Italy, right? So majority of the fans who are going to go through are not really going to care about the migrant. The truth of the matter is they're not going to care about the migrant workers. They're going to care about their country trying to win the World Cup. And that is what we see on social media where in the weeks and months leading to the World Cup, there have been a lot of posts on the kind of players that are going to be there, videos from old World Cups. They have ambassadors coming through, giving the good word. So we see that the Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy are doing their good work with raising the awareness for why the World Cup is going to be successful. At the same time, we see a group of people, some federations and some clubs as well, trying to say that, listen, we need more being done for the migrant workers who 6,500 6, of them are dead and others are still suffering. I read somewhere, Jabu, that what we see with the migrant situation for people who would go and read deeper into it, the kind of system with owning your migrants it comes deeply from um, the kind of rule that the imperial British, um, yeah, um, sorry, the imperial British, what's the word I'm looking for? Empire. The monarch oh, empire. The yes, system. the kafala system. Good, good. The kafala system was used by the British on the Qataris many, many years ago, and after they left. The Qataris adopted that that kafala system, and that is what they that is what the migrant workers are experiencing right now. So to say you're going to stop something which have been the norm to them for generations, 
within a month, that is ludicrous. It's not going to work. So rather, fans and activists need to look at the long-term implementation. It shouldn't just be noise for this World Cup. It should be noise for any other tournament that has been held in the Qatar region, right? That will show that people truly care. Because you and I know for a fact that after this World Cup, all the activation is going to go down. And the activation really and truly started, let's say, within five years ago. Because that was when people were saying, oh, we need to start to focus on the migrant workers. That should not stop after the World Cup. We should rather look for innovative ways for tackling the issues that these migrant workers are facing, where in the end, we can start to gradually raise awareness for a condemnation of the kafala system and moving away from that and rather finding ways where people can be integrated into society and allowed to live and work like the true human beings that they are that is what i believe people should rather focus on right but like you said when the first goal goes in you and i are going to forget at least for a good 90 minutes right that there are some migrant workers somewhere exactly. who are affected during the build on the stadium, the magnificent goals we're going to see by the likes of Messi, Ronaldo, Mbappe, Modric at the World Cup are going to blow our mind. And that is where our focus is. So what I believe we can do going forward is that is that groups like the FIFA fan movement, groups like fan movements in other countries should come together host summits where they invite the key stakeholders, especially individuals from the Supreme committee of delivery and legacy and rather than fighting against them find innovative ways to collaborate what we see on social media is a lot of fighting fighting is not going to get us anywhere collaboration is going to get us places so if you're going to say find better ways of helping these migrant workers it's better to actually say that these are x number of ways that migrant workers their livelihoods can be improved. How can we then implement it? So it doesn't show you as a noisemaker, but it shows you as a solutions architect, which is what we need in sports right now. You couldn't have said it better, Edom. And that wraps up an episode with Edom and myself on the diplomacy, international relations and soft power and the World Cup by J. Simon Roof which is an, an, a chapter of paramount importance. And although it might not be directly linked to the sports business in a way, it really is because these political entities, these states or sovereign wealth funds are funding the sports business, are funding the global sports business. And so these actors in particular are really fascinating to analyze and we will continue doing that inevitably. Even this is a fantastic episode of the Business of the World Cup series our fourth episode of the series. So the five-part series is sadly ending on the next episode. I've really enjoyed this conversation and looking forward to the next one, which is going to be a nice outro to the business of the FIFA World Cup. Please, please do like, subscribe, and follow us on Spotify and Apple. Leave us a five-star rating, if you will. It really helps with growing the podcast. Edom, thank you for coming on this episode of the podcast. Thank you very much, Jabu, for having this conversation with me. Thank you for 
breaking down what diplomacy and soft power and international relations in the World Cup is truly is. To our fans out there, contact us, send us your point of view. We'd like to have a discussion with you and definitely exciting times are coming ahead for you and for the podcast. Thank you very much. Bless you. Goodbye till we meet again in the next episode.